Welcome to Cotton Specialist Corner. I'm Seth Bird. We're back with part two of our Mid-South cover crop discussion. I'm joined by that same group, but we'll do introductions anyway, just in case you forgot who we're talking to. Well, Seth, this is Bill Robertson. I'm Cotton Extension Agronomist with the University of Arkansas System Division of Ag Cooperative Extension Service located out of Newport, Arkansas. And this is Brian Paralisi, Extension Cotton Specialist with Mississippi State. This is Tyson Raper with University of Tennessee. I'm the cotton specialist located in Jackson, Tennessee. This is Bradley Wilson with the University of Missouri, cotton specialist located down in Portugal. Thanks, guys, for joining us again. In the last episode, we basically got through cover crop management inputs, how they're managing your states, how they're grown, up to cotton planting and how cotton planting needs to be maybe tweaked or adjusted when you're going into these different cover systems. So now we're going to really focus on in-season management of cotton in a cover compared to other systems. So what factors for y'all that need to be addressed in season, any kind of cover system versus no cover system, or maybe within the different cover programs that y'all mentioned last time. And we'll start with just talking about irrigation or maybe just water supply in general. How do you see that changing? I know there's maybe this is some low hanging fruit, but you know, I know irrigation is you know one of the biggest factors that we study. And so when you're using covers, how do y'all see that change? Well, I'll start with Tennessee. You know, our acreage, we're 90 some odd percent dry land. So we can't really change the way we manage water. But cover crops are a tremendous help for us in increasing that water infiltration level and increasing plant available water when we get into drier periods. And we got lots of data on that. You know, there's lots and lots of benefits for us for integrating cover crops from reducing erosion standpoint, increasing water filtration, weed separation, you know, the list goes on. So we don't really manipulate management from a water standpoint. A few growers will try to, especially on a monocot heavy mix, they might try to move a little bit of their nitrogen application up in the season, knowing that some of that nitrogen is going to be immobilized and not plant available. But, you know, late season, I mean, for us, it's really the same game. If you've made it through the establishment window, it's really a kick your feet up and reap the benefits. Again, the risks for us are really around that cotton establishment time frame if you can get through that first couple of weeks after you plant from there on management doesn't change much but we really just are able to kind of capture the benefits of having cover crops in the system i'd say it's pretty similar here too in mississippi we're not going to change our irrigation strategies due to cover crop per se it's more of one of the benefits hopefully once you get your cotton stand established is to hope that you know, there's more available moisture, more pore space. You know, your soil moisture lasts longer. But every year is different. The past few years, we've had very little irrigation even needed. So it's more of, you know, do you get a couple extra days? Maybe you'll catch another rain, you know, versus a non-cover crop. And then, like you said, in terms of available nitrogen, you know, depending on your residue, 
there's been a lot of talk about reducing nitrogen rates this year. In that kind of situation, we would definitely not reduce rates. We don't necessarily increase a whole lot due to cover crops. Depending on the mix, we might increase a little bit, but we're definitely not going to decrease any. That'd be one of the more management strategies. But in terms of irrigation, I say, like Tyson said, I mean, we just hope that they benefit us to some degree. That could change depending on the weather. Yeah, for us in Missouri, I mean, I think we're in the same boat as what Brian was talking about in terms of irrigation. I don't think we'll really see changes in the irrigation management or strategies from that. One thing that I've learned is in some of these mixes where you may have a lagoon or you're able to scavenge down and get some of that nitrogen tied up, yeah, you may see some early season where you may need to apply a small amount of nitrogen. But we've also had some folks that have been able to reduce their inputs in a year from typical 120 to 140, where they may be putting out an actual 100 pounds of nitrogen now. So we have seen the ability to reduce some of those nitrogen inputs, and that may very well come into play this year with fertilizer projects. In Arkansas, I feel like one of our biggest challenges for profitable cotton production goes back to the lack of soil structure. With our sit loam soils, we have very little soil structure and that greatly impacts water infiltration. And so we have poor water infiltration. If you look at most of the textbooks, they'll show you know half an inch of water an hour for our infiltration rate. And when we go out to the field and measure that, if it's pretty dry, about half an inch is all we can get. If we've got some soil moisture, then we can get three quarters. Sometimes we can get an inch of water infiltration in an hour. So it's no wonder. When we get big rains like what we've been getting, it all runs off. But I feel like the cover crops, several different ways they help us to generate and improve our soil structure. And that helps us with water infiltration and things like everybody else is saying. Because of that, we get a deeper, effective root system. I know in some fields where I go out and we put watermark soil moisture sensors out, a lot of times we'll get a hard pan that develops about six inches. And when we get into first flower, especially in a dry year on cotton, if we get a single rainfall event or a single irrigation event, sometimes that six-inch sensor is the only thing that knows that we got moisture in the field. When I look at the cover crop side, the 6, 12, and 18-inch sensor detects that we've got soil moisture, water infiltration. And our roots that do all the heavy lifting on water uptake and nutrient uptake are going to be where the moisture goes. And something that's really been a challenge for me is Look at some of our other folks in the university system that are doing work. Some of them, like on our corn and early beans, they'll put the 30-inch sensor in. Those same soils, why do they get such deeper water infiltration is, you know, they start watering earlier. How many waters do we have in our corn before we even start watering cotton? And so our soil and our cotton gets dry. And we have a lot of soils that are fragipan in nature. So we have a chemical hard pan as well as a physical hard pan. And so that complicates things. But when we start watering early, then that helps maintain the moisture of the soil and its ability to take up moisture is better. So I think that's the big difference in some of the research that people are doing on the corn and even some of our early beans and why that's so different than what I'm seeing in cotton. Because I really struggled with that. Why is this so different than what others are seeing? But, you know, when we have an issue with the soil not taking up water, what do we do? We say, well, we need to do deep tillage. So we'll go out there with a ripping plow and rip it open. And unfortunately, the last few years, we've only had a very limited window where we could actually shatter a hard pan. We could slice wet soil, but there's not very many times that we could actually shatter a hard pan. But when we shatter that hard pan, 
you think about the lack of soil structure, that silt runs down and fills those pores up. So a lot of times our first irrigation after we run a deep tillage, the field really soaks up a lot of water. Then the next irrigation runs a little faster and then the next one's a little faster yet. So then by the time we get into the heat of the battle, we all know that when we get into bloom, that's when we have peak water demands and peak nutrient demands are picking up. And by then, those pores that we made with that deep tillage have already silted back over. You know, most farmers I know have track holes and they clean silt out of ditches pretty regular to get the water off the field. So those ditches silt up just like those pores silt up with our irrigation or rainfall, just because we don't have the structure of the glue to hold the soil particles together. And so with what I've seen where we have some of our fields where we measure the amount of runoff leaving the field, we measure the amount of rain or the amount of irrigation we pump on. We've seen as much as double the amount of water going into the soil profile where we have the cover crops. But we all know cotton doesn't like wet feet, does it? A lot of times in some of our challenges, the way we irrigate cotton, then sometimes our dry corners yield better than underneath the pivot just because we're watering at the wrong time because the rains come in and really complicates things. But bottom line, in a wet year, a lot of times I don't see any kind of yield difference between where we had cover crops and where we didn't. But in a really dry year, with the improved water infiltration, a lot of times I've seen as much as a 10% yield increase. And so that yield increase, sometimes we have it, sometimes we don't. And that makes it kind of difficult to make a whole hog switch from one system that you're used to to one that you're not. And I know we'll talk about challenges later on, but those are some of the things that we see as we go through the year and what happens, how we impact irrigation. But there's a host of other things that farmers are interested in as far as looking at cover crops and trying cover crops. Yeah, that's a great point, Bill. And you described the different factors that play a role in that water response really well. And Tyson mentioned with the surf response that he's primarily dry land. And I probably worded the question poorly. I certainly think that the impact of covers in these different systems are obviously going to be different. And I actually think they could be potentially in some years more impactful in dry land. But let me ask you guys this, especially, you know, y'all that have done work in soil moisture and covers before. I guess the way I think about it, and this is maybe the environments that I've worked in, or I may just be wrong. But it doesn't necessarily, for me, the cover crop always makes, almost makes a rainfall last a little bit longer. It allows you to bridge the gap, especially in a dryland system, from one rain to the next a little bit better than the lack of cover. It's maintaining you know, some of that available water longer. Does that sound about like what y'all have experienced? It is for me, Seth. You know, a lot of times, you know, this last year, even though we didn't do a lot of irrigation, a lot of times we saved an irrigation on the cover crop side. And we've got a lot of tools now to help us schedule irrigations. The soil moisture sensors are a big value. But where I mentioned a while ago, where we have poor soil structure, a lot of times that 16th sensor is the only one that really shows any movement. Well, it's hard to get a return on investment on that equipment when you're not getting very deep water infiltration. But on the covers where I have my 6, 12, and 18-inch sensor knows that it rained or that we watered, my potential to get a really good return on investment by better scheduling irrigation is much greater with that technology. So that's just another thing that makes some of our other tools work a lot better, in my opinion. But in a really wet year, you know, cotton doesn't like wet feet. And Seth, I know, you know, we're in a Mid-South region now, but as far as last year when we were in, you know, Western Oklahoma, we definitely saw some differences in terms of square loss between, you know, some of our cover crop treatments that we had. And some of those treatments where we didn't have cover, they dried up 
much faster than what we were seeing in other areas. I can say that we've seen definitely with cover crops, you know, moisture staying in the soil profile longer. But, you know, it's always complicated, like you said, Bill. On the eastern side of the state where we have heavy cover crop, that's probably one of our biggest areas, was our wettest portion of the state last year. And so it almost compounded the issue. I can think of one farmer in one field, for instance, he did not put out a single input with a ground rig. I mean, every input was by air. And then, you know, at the end of the year, the yield, you know, suffered from that. So, you know, it can hold more moisture. It would have been wetter regardless, but I'm not sure that it really helped there because, I mean, the cotton definitely had wet feet, you know, season long. But given an average year, moderate rainfall, I could see there could be some benefit there just with extra moisture. Yeah, I think it's all the way we think about it. Sometimes the way it's pictured or talked about, it's going to be this huge increase. But I think it's really, you know, it's these small benefits that we get that really help us with that moisture. And of course, like y'all say, if it's wet, it's wet. And if it's too wet, then you can almost get a negative response. Brian and Bradley both mentioned fertility. And Bill, it's something you said in the last episode, you know, when you're talking about determination and that carbon to nitrogen ratio, you know, being higher, of course, the later you let that rye go, cereal rye. So I guess my question now to you and Tyson, from y'all's perspective, since, you know, Brian and Brad talked about fertility and nitrogen specifically, do y'all see fertility tweaked in these cover systems to sort of make up for anything that might be tied up in that residue? It's a great question. And yes, I think generally we'll shift a little bit earlier in the season with that nitrogen application than we might otherwise, just to try to fight a little bit of that immobilization associated with the cover crop. A little aside here, I would love to be able to count some of the nitrogen fixed by the cover crop in the cotton production system. But again, because of our very low levels of biomass and our early termination dates, we rarely pick up much nitrogen from the cover crop. So even if you're planting a 100% legume, let's say like a crimson clover, you really have to be in a mid-bloom growth stage to be accumulating enough nitrogen that after termination, you're going to see that nitrogen bleed over into that following cash crop. For us, you know, from a corn scenario, it very, very, very rarely happens for us in Tennessee just because we terminate so very early in that corn scenario. In the cotton scenario, we're right on the edge. But again, most of the time, we're still terminating too early to really capture any nitrogen benefit. And I'd like to hear the comments to the others here. I suspect might be a little bit different as you creep a little bit further south, but not been something that we've really been able to capture the benefit of here in Tennessee. Seth, I agree with Tyson on the nitrogen credit aspect. I rarely feel like I see any kind of nitrogen credit with cotton following beans. The big thing that I see sometimes though, if we leave our cover crop in the field too long, especially if we don't have a lot of diversity in our cover crop, and we have a cereal rye where the carbon nitrogen ratio gets so high, we have competition between soil microbes for nitrogen and the cotton root. And, you know, there's more bacteria in, in a tablespoon of soil than there are people on earth. And so they are much better at getting nitrogen than others. So there's some allelopathy that's going on. And I think a lot of it's competition for that nitrogen. But what I have seen, especially when we go in at split fields, when a farmer does the same with his fertility on both sides of the field where he doesn't have cover and where he do have cover. You know, I talked about the greater water infiltration. We get double the amount of water into the soil profile. And I feel like a lot of times we're tripling or even quadrupling our effective root zone. And when we increase our effective root zone, 
then there's so much more nitrogen that's down there that the plant has access to and can get. And a lot of times I have a bigger, greener plant that doesn't want to shut down at the end of the year. So that causes some issues. And sometimes I feel like I could have improved yield by cutting back on nitrogen where I am improving my effective rooting zone. And so, you know, as we were going into this season and it looked like nitrogen prices were going up, I was telling people that the thing I'd want to try to do, I'd want to try to grow as big of a root system as I could grow my cotton plant. And to do that, you know, there's several things you can do. I think cover crop is one way to help increase my root zone. The bigger root I have on there, the deeper my effective rooting zone, the more efficient I feel like I'm going to be with my fertility. And so I think those are some things that, you know, farming now, you know, business as usual is out the door. I don't think it's ever going to go back, even with a dollar cotton. If we don't change the way we do things, we're going to have some people that don't pay out. We're going to have to start looking at doing things different and doing things that are more in our control. Most of the farmers I work with, their granddads or their great granddads all had cover crops. And we got synthetic fertilizers and we kind of got away from that. We may have to start you know, usually things make a big circle and I think it's time to circle back around on some of those things, but it's a completely different way to farm. And we're going to have to learn how to farm that way because right now, if we can't adapt to learn to farm that way, well, (laughs) stuff's not going to work for us. The dollar bill is going to drive a lot of that. And so we'll kind of see how things go. But I think if we do go more of a direction of cover crops, we're going to have to learn how to farm a little different. That's a great point, Bill. I mean, it all gets impacted. Change one thing, it's going to have a ripple effect. In your whole system. Question I want to get to was other things, you know, fertility and irrigation are the two things we probably talk about the most with potentially adjusting when we're introducing covers. I thought about harvest aids purely from the standpoint of when you're seeding your cover prior to foliation and assuming you get some emerged, changing what products you have available. But Bill, you also mentioned that you could have a growth response. So outside of fertility and irrigation and maybe harvest aids or maybe wherever else y'all see the need. What other things do you see considered or adjusted or factors that play a role when you're, you know, growing cotton in a cover versus not? You know, I would think depending on what your fertility is, you may see, you know, changes in PGRs in terms of like, you know, I've talked to several folks who who thought they had been putting out a little more, you know, nitrogen than they should have in the past. And they've been able to cut that right now, but, you know, they've had to go out and make several more or a few more PGR applications to slow that growth down. I guess, I don't know, maybe not as much about harvest dates. You know, I haven't been through a growing season here yet, so we'll see how that goes with this year. But that may be something that, you know, is in the forefront of their minds when they're thinking about, you know, seeding these cover crops prior to the foliation. Say something that we've seen or something that I've seen in Arkansas especially as we've gotten into some of our later maturing, very aggressive growing varieties, either with or without a cover, is that we've seen if we reduce our plant population and reduce our fertility, then the PGR is a lot easier to manage through the year. And then the defoliation aspect is much easier. And so we're seeing people starting to do that. If we do our cover crop, I have run into some challenges where I have a greener, more vigorous plant at defoliation time, and it just moves our defoliation timing back. We've got a lot of acres stacked on these pickers, and I know some people have over 2,000 acres dedicated to a picker. And so if we're going to do that, we've got to get the picker in the field early and keep that thing running so that we can get out before we get too late in the fall. So I think as far as our harvest aids, you know, we don't use the GenStar, the products with diuron 
in Arkansas, I think there's some issues with our cover crops when we use that product. You know, this year I saw a lot of finish and drop going out on the first shot and then finish that up with our bowl opening rate at the pond and starting to see some people seeing some advantages going with a product like ET, that second shot. Some people are getting away from Folex. But anyway, there's different things going on. But those products that we typically use really don't have an impact on our cover crops from what I've seen. But there are some out there that you can use that will impact the growth of the cover crops. The differences that we've seen in Tennessee have been slight. I will say there have been some scenarios where we could see a little impact on cover crop growth. But I do think it's also important to recognize, you know, the rate of these products we're putting out is not very high. I mean, especially if you think about Diuron or Thidiazuron, for example, we're putting out, you know, ounces compared to if we were putting it out, Diuron for a residual pre-emerge, we'd be running, you know, much, much, much higher rates closer to a pint. So we can see some short-term impacts. I've not witnessed what I felt like was any lasting stunning or lasting impacts. I think it is important to note when we're talking about these harvest aids too, that even Ethafon has plant back interval for small grains. So it's going to be really, really difficult. I mean, that's one product. Sure, we got some replacements for some of these defoliants, but we're all running bowl opener and it's just going to have to be a necessary evil. And we're going to have to just, you know, deal with what I've witnessed to be slight impacts, slight effects of harvest aid on that typically very young or soon to emerge cover crop. Yeah, I agree with what y'all are saying. Our biggest issue with the cover crop in establishment is just the weather. You know, like you were mentioning, Bill, with Genstar, if you're trying to fly this on prior to defoliation, there might be some issues, but most of our land that goes into cover crop receives some kind of tillage most of the time. So it's going to, you know, mix that in and disrupted some of that chemistry. And we haven't really seen a problem with that, but it's definitely something to consider. And most of our acres are, you know, drop, prep, and then ET and at the fine, you know, those two combinations in the first and second shot. And I hadn't seen any influence of the ethafon, but like you mentioned, it does have a 30-day plant back. But I think with some of the tillage that we do, that really hadn't been an issue that I've seen. Maybe it is influencing some of us while we're not getting the stand, but I attribute most of that to the weather that we've had recently. Yes, I'd say a lot of the label stuff on these harvest products has more to do with the end use. As far as ethafon goes, it's a 30-day plant back to harvesting for grain. I think as long as you're going with a cover, it's probably fine. And my guess would be that it has more to do with residue levels than it does crop response. I mean, I personally have seen a lot of fields with ethafon and other products applied with emerged covers, whether it's wheat or rye. And like y'all are saying, I don't think I've seen a crop response. I think it has more to do with residue levels if it's going to go to a grain. And most of the time, or all the time, in my experience, you know, we know that we're going to terminate these as a cover and plant cotton back on that field the next year. So I think along with soil moisture benefits and maybe soil loss due to wind or water erosion, one of the things that is most commonly talked about as being a reason covers are used or a benefit from them is pest mitigation, whether it's weeds or insects. And as we talked on the last episode, and as Bill has already mentioned, on the insect side, you can kind of have both. You can have some pests that are inhibited through covers, but you can also have some pests that are maybe spiked through covers or maybe, you know, in higher numbers. 
So from each of you, just, you know, what are your experiences or your thoughts on pest control through covers, whether it's weeds or insects, or if you want to delve into diseases at all, feel free. Let me start off on this. And I know some of the people that do covers and I feel like are very successful with covers, they scout their covers before they plant. So that's another job for the consultant that we're not paying any more money for it. (laughs) But anyway, they need to know what's out there. And a lot of times it's not unusual to see like 80 to one, 80 beneficials to one pest. And so when I first came to Arkansas and when we looked at kind of what our thought was on planting in the residue, whether the residue was green or brown, that if we had that out there, we were worried about cutworms. And so what do you do if you're worried about cutworms? You throw a pyrethroid out and spray it behind the press well on the planter. Used to be way less than a dollar. It's probably more than a dollar an acre now, but that was a pretty cheap thing. But if we have a lot of beneficials out there before we plant and we don't have pests, what happens when we put that pyrethroid behind the planter? We knock all of our beneficials out. And so we need to know what's out there. And if there is a pest and there's some things that we need to think about, whether we're going to have a green bridge or something like that, we need to kind of scout that and know that before we put a planter in the field. So I think that's really important. And so knowing what's out there in your cover before you plant will go a long ways. And don't shoot yourself in the foot by putting a pyrethroid behind the planter if all of it's going to do is knock out all your beneficials because that'll lock you into some more issues. But when I talk to growers or growers are interested in planting cover crops, most of the time what gets the grower into doing cover crops is palmer pigweed. That gets them started. But then once they get in there, the thing that keeps them in from what I've seen is the increased water infiltration, the impact it has on compaction. But to get a farmer started, I really like what Larry Steckel and Tom Barber's done the same thing here in Arkansas when they're looking at their cover research. There's several things that a cover crop can do to help inhibit pigweed germination in that whole system. But there's a lot of things to help. Typically, kind of what we've seen is this last year, pretty much everywhere we had cover when we was looking at trying to scout and manage the fields different, we saved a plant bug spray. We saved an irrigation. Sometimes we saved two plant bug sprays. So there's some things out there, but you got to be out there and got to look and take into account what's going on to be able to realize that. I don't know how you say it any better than what Bill just said, but those are some very big issues for us in terms of pigweed control. And keeping that out, especially, you know, when we start to see plant bugs, you know, compaction, that's one thing I've also heard, too. It's just the ability with the use of cover crops to reduce tremendously compaction. Yeah, well, just hate to be an echo there, but we have two, like I mentioned earlier, we have two different growing regions. You have the eastern side of the state, which is the Black Prairie, and then the Delta. In the Delta, what's going to get most of the growers is obviously Palmer control trying to do something to establish that control early. And then if that works, the next motivation would be to try to decrease some kind of a hard pan or get better water infiltration. But on the east side, by and large, you could talk to any farmer over there and their primary reason is erosion, trying to hold their soil in place. So that's the two primary reasons it's going to get somebody trying this in Mississippi. And then like we were talking earlier, Seth, might not be for everyone. I do want to mention, you know, Number one reason for adoption is weed control. I would say number two, and often underestimated, would be the increase in water infiltration, reduction in erosion, increase in plant available water. Touching on the weed control thing, I do want to mention, just because we haven't here yet, this isn't a standalone. So we definitely see a reduction in weed pressure, emergence, et cetera. There's always going to be that thin spot or maybe a spot that the 
cover didn't lay down like it ought to have, and so you've got some bare ground exposed. You don't have quite the maybe a liliopathic effect in some areas that you do in others. We still need a residual, and Dr. Larry Seckle, as Dr. Robertson mentioned, has done quite a bit of work on this. You know, not all residuals are created equal in their ability to suppress weeds in the cover crop system. He's got some really interesting data on which ones work the best, but based on what we've found, he's clearly going to save some inputs in season, likely a post-application, but we still need that pre at planting. Something just to keep in mind. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, you know, both you and Brian mentioned this, but, you know, there's different ways to do covers. You can do it, you know, maybe a more traditional way. You can do something green or you can do none at all. It's whatever works for you. And certainly a lot of different options out there to make a crop. And, you know, with them, these benefits, you know, similar to the weed control and moisture, it's not going to be a miracle. It's not going to be, you know, if we get a cover, we don't need it to rain anymore. Still need it to rain. Still need to get moisture into the ground. And with the weed control, we may suppress some weeds, but we certainly still have to have other methods involved for weed control. It's not just a silver bullet. Something that I've seen, you know, I want to echo what Tyson said on the pre, we need to have the pre. But people that I've seen that I feel like been pretty successful go out after planting, but before cracking or before the plant comes up with an application of gramoxone. And that helps make sure we got good weed control. And it seemed like to me it has the impact on the cereal rye, especially if you have straight cereal rye to get it to lay down better. I've seen that. So you kind of get a double-edged sword there, but the pre is very important. But I think gramoxone behind the planter is something that helps a lot of people. That's a good point. Yeah. Thanks, Bill. So we'll wrap up with a two-parter. So take notes. You know, what is the primary reason or reasons that producers in your area have adopted covers? And a couple of y'all already covered this. But the second part is, what do you see as the big hurdles to adoption for each of your areas? I think the number one reason for us to adopt would be resistance management and ability to suppress troublesome weeds. Second one would be that increase in water infiltration, increase in plant available water, and decrease in erosion. For us, clearly, Almost all the hurdles occur in late April and early May when we are trying our best to establish a crop at a latitude that is already relatively difficult to get the crop established. And what we're doing with cover crop is we're adding moisture to the system and we're removing heat, reducing temperature. Those are the hurdles for us. If we can get past those hurdles, if we can get to the 20th of May, usually we're fine. But, you know, there are some years where we have some real challenges associated with that. We've got some management practices, in my mind, that can help us through those hurdles. They do limit some of the benefits of the cover crop in season if we terminate early, but it reduces some of the risk associated with establishing cotton in that cover crop. So it's definitely a good option for us. It is not something that in year one, I think a 2,000-acre grower needs to plant on every acre. Most of the successful guys around us have started small. They've been willing to innovate and get creative on how to make it work for their system. And there's a lot of different ways to make the system work. I would agree with Tyson on several of those things. I guess one thing that's, you know, for adoption of these is we've got several folks that, you know, we talk about cotton yields, but, you know, they're maintaining those yields. And so while seeing the benefits of that compaction and water infiltration, so that's one reason that we are seeing some of these folks still are actually adopting this and using this throughout their production scenarios. Well, just to what Tyson said about, you know, why we're not seeing adoption, 
again, soil temperature, you know, and moisture at the early start of the season. But also think, you know, it can be challenging switching from one thing to another, especially if you haven't done it before. So that would be something that, you know, if I was in that situation, it may be for that reason. It's just something different and you haven't done it before. Yeah, y'all have covered, you know, all the reasons why we would get into it here in Mississippi, you know, erosion, weak control, water infiltration. But I guess more than anything, reasons for not adopting and not using cover crops, you know, kind of go hand in hand. A lot of our guys like to start clean, have a clean field, you know. And the reason they do that is because they know they can get a stand that way. And they may or may not have attempted cover crops in the past and may have failed. You know, we're learning there's so many ways you can do it and so many ways it can work with your system. And a lot of tools, you know, you might want to run ahead of the planner or just being aware and knowing the steps to take to be successful. And, you know, I think a lot of these guys just know they can get a stand in the way that they know how to do it. And we're reluctant to change things. And, you know, like you said, there could be some risk. If you don't get a good stand the first time, if you have to replant, I mean, you're already behind. You know where that can take you. So that's my two cents. I want to echo what everybody else has said. There are a lot of reasons that will benefit you by using cover crops. But something I think that we have to try to take it to the next level is sometimes we see yield increase and sometimes we don't. But we need to, I think, getting a better understanding on what we cannot spend money on is, I think, going to help drive this on more acres. I know in Arkansas, we spend extra money on cotton just to make up for our lack of soil structure. And when we get improved soil structure, then we improve our external drainage, we improve internal drainage and get a deeper effective root system. Then there's extra money we don't have to spend on cotton because we don't have to, but getting comfortable not doing that because we know how to do things kind of business as usual, business as usual out the door, but still sometimes it's difficult for us to have enough time to learn something new. And starting small, like Tyson said, I think is very important. And kind of what I've seen, some people that started small on soybeans and started small on cotton have expanded much greater on soybeans. Soybeans are very forgiving. A grass-based cover crop is what we need to look at on cotton and beans. But I think the straight seal rye works so much easier and so much better on beans than it does cotton. I see some of the cotton guys still kind of expanding where they've gone full bore, especially on their dryland beans. They got cover crop on every acre of their dryland beans to help them with their irrigation costs. But there are a lot of social challenges too. I know when I was growing up and my dad and I would drive around and look at all of our neighbors. And if you had clean fields and straight rows, you were a good farmer. If you had crooked rows and you had grown up fields, well, then you weren't a good farmer. And so a lot of the things that we see when we look at a field that don't look like that guy knows what he's doing. And there's a lot of competition for land. And sometimes when we start something new, we stump our toe, we have a little bit of a yield loss. We can't afford that right now. And some of our landlords are even less forgiving on something like that. Because if you don't get them their rent check, well, then they got a list of people that are wanting to farm that ground right now. So sometimes people, you know, there's opportunity to lose some ground if you don't generate the rent check that the landlords are expecting to get. There are several challenges, but I think the main thing is we got to learn this, be more comfortable with it, figure out, okay, Sometimes we get more revenue on the front end, but we have to figure out how we can consistently grow cotton cheaper. And I think there's opportunity here, but again, that's going to be different for everybody. And it's going to be a challenge that it's going to be hard for us to overcome because we don't have the luxury to stump our toe, even with a dollar cotton. It's going to be hard to pay all of our bills, so we can't stump our toe. And that's kind of the environment that we're in right now. So I think this is something out there that's going to work different for everybody. 
but I think there's an opportunity for it to fit. Thanks, Bill. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the whole point of this. It's not a new thing, but obviously it's ever increasing in whether you say popularity or just press, you see a lot of it. And so certainly not promoting doing it or not doing it, just trying to cover some of the things that you all have noticed in your regions. And obviously whatever works best for your producers is hopefully what they're doing. But appreciate y'all's time again for a two-parter. I'd like to thank Cotton Incorporated for their sponsorship of this podcast. You can find us on Focus on Cotton. We search for that. You can also find us on all of the podcast providers. Just search Cotton Specialist Corner. Love for you to subscribe. Give us a rating. Leave a comment. We are on Twitter at Cotton Corner Pod. But I'd also like to thank Keith Edmiston for the music. And thank you for listening.